Well, good morning. Nice to be back with you. I was here in February. There was snow on the ground, so this is much more favorable in my mind. You'd have to wait a thousand years in Phoenix to see a snowflake. Well, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. That will more or less be our home base. We'll go to some other places, but we'll spend more of our time there. And as you go to Luke 23, I will pray once more and ask God to bless our time in His Word. Father, thank You for recording Scripture for us. Nobody needs to know what I think, but they desperately need to know what You think and what You've already said. So bless the preaching of your words today, and may your message be communicated so they see your son in a richer, deeper, fresher way. Amen. Well, last words matter. person's last words that they utter before they leave this world and enter the next carry significant weight. And surely no last words were as significant or weighty as those uttered by the greatest man to ever walk the earth, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For as he hung upon the cross and uttered his last words before his death, as God's wrath poured out upon him as blood dripped down like crimson tears, your Savior uttered seven final sayings. Seven final sayings that give you insight into the work of Christ upon the cross before he actually accomplished his work of dying. And so what I want to do with you this morning is look at the first of his three, first three of his seven sayings upon the cross. Because these sayings give you, as I mentioned, insight into a dimension of Christ's work as Savior that some of you may have never considered before. And so what I hope will happen this morning is you will see and behold Christ in a fresh and new way. What I want to do as we look at the story of the crucifixion in part is I want to essentially walk to the foot of the cross. And I want to look up and gaze at your Savior as he hangs. And I want to lean in and turn your ear so that you hear those last sayings. Because as you listen to these last words of Christ, as it were, the curtains of heaven will be parted. And you will see Christ in a way that will cause you to treasure his work on the cross in a new and fresh way. To deepen your affections and elevate your worship. So we'll begin in Luke 23. And we'll start with this first work of Christ, this first saying of Christ. And we're going to call it a work of pardon. A work of pardon. And by pardon, I mean forgiveness. And this work of pardon is encapsulated in the first of his seven sayings on the cross. So if you're in Luke 23... Why don't you look at verse 34. Here's what Christ says. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Well, let's wind back the clock. Let's pierce this moment and enter the crucifixion together. Here we are at Golgotha. Upon the cross, raised, elevated, hangs the Savior, Jesus Christ. Arms are outstretched, his chest is heaving, his skin bleeding, his body naked, his head high, and his eyes full of sadness and pain. John 1.19 records that nailed above his head is a placard, a sign, and it says this, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Well, on his right and on his left flanking him are two criminals. They're condemned to die, and yet even as they die, they snarl in contempt as this pathetic figure of a man hanging between them. Below him, on the ground, are the Roman soldiers. They cast Lot for his clothes. He's a joke to them. They scoff at him, this dying man. 
Luke 23, verse 37, it records their words, their taunts. Here's what they say, these soldiers. If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. Nearby, not far off, are the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, and they're proud, they're defiant. Their glorious moment is now as their hated enemy dies. In verse 35, it captures their words, these religious leaders. Even the rulers were scoffing at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Sarcasm drips off their lips. But intermixed with the soldiers and the rulers, you have the crowds. Those gawking spectators who were there, many of whom were formerly screaming for his crucifixion at the praetorium where Pilate was, and now they follow them to the scene of the crucifixion. And they gaze at this dying man, pathetic, naked, hanging, blood dripping, he looks not like a savior. In fact, they too join the chaos and they mock Jesus. Luke doesn't tell you what they say, but Mark does. Mark says the vile crowds say this, Mark chapter 15. Ha! You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. So this is the scene that we enter in our text, Jesus utters his first statement upon the cross, and it's in this moment, hanging there, and he is the object of their scorn, the object of their mocking. No one looks at him as Savior. He is pathetic in their eyes, and that's why they mock him. And as they exult in his death, Heaven's son begins to speak. And he shatters the silence because if you remember, up until this point, he has said nothing. See, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the Lamb who was silent before his shearers, which is what Isaiah 53, 7 says. He didn't defend himself before Pilate, didn't defend himself before Herod, didn't defend himself before the Jewish leaders. So up until this point, the lamb who has uttered no words in his defense now opens his mouth. And you might think, well, he's going to defend himself. He's going to set the record straight. Maybe he's going to pour forth condemnation and wrath upon this vile, filthy crowd of onlookers. But as we see, Jesus opens his mouth not to speak to men but actually to speak about men. He opens his mouth to speak to God. And he doesn't open his mouth, mind you, to call down fire and brimstone, which if you were hanging on the cross or if I was hanging on the cross, we probably would do. No, he calls upon God in defense of sinners. In this moment. Look again at verse 34. But Jesus was saying. Father forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Which of you would have expected. The dying savior to say this. About those who were crucifying him. Again which of us would have ever said these words. Were we the crucified one? Who, who but the Lord Jesus Christ could say, Father, forgive them? The leaders are laughing at him. The soldiers are scoffing at him. The crowds are despising him. The thieves deriding him. And yet Jesus is the lone voice who speaks to God and he speaks on behalf of man. And he says, Father, forgive them. And you should ask the question, who is the them? Right? Who's the them? Who's he talking about? Is he saying, Father, forgive everyone who is here, everyone who is complicit in this crime against God? 
Well, no, that's not what he's saying. So in some sense, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, this is, in a way, a general prayer for mankind. And it, what it is is an example to show that no sin is too great, but that the blood of Christ can wash it away. Even the murder of God's own son is not so great, but that God's mercy and grace can remove it. But more than an example, Jesus' words are a prayer of forgiveness unto salvation for specific people. This wasn't a blanket pardon for everyone there. But this was a pardon for specific individuals that God had preordained before time began. And I'll show you that. Right? So who did Christ have in mind with the them? Well, most probably he had in mind the thief on the cross. Because in verse 43, we're going to see that Jesus offers salvation to the most unlikely of sinners. This very day, just hours from now. Manna will fall from heaven in the form of salvation upon a thief on a cross. Jesus had that man in mind, no doubt. But he also had in mind, surely, the centurion at the foot of the cross who utters this in Luke 23, verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was righteous. This man being a reference to Christ. And what I believe is that that is an affirmation that in the course of the crucifixion, the centurion realized that Jesus was no criminal. He was God's own son. And this was an expression of faith, I would believe. So Jesus had in mind the thief. He had in mind the centurion. I believe he also had in mind the soldiers, or at least some of them who were at the foot of the cross. Matthew, in a parallel account, says this, Matthew 27, 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and they said, truly, this was God's son. So it wasn't, again, only the centurion at the cross who acknowledged this was God's son and no common criminal. No, no, it was some of the other soldiers as well which I believe indicates that they found true faith that day. But surely Jesus also had in mind the 3,000 Jews who were converted at Pentecost. See, Acts 2.41 records 3,000 were saved when Peter preached at Pentecost. Right? And many of those, no doubt, were even in this moment in our text, standing in the crowd, mocking, scorning, deriding him. And yet in Acts, those very haters will become lovers of God when they get converted. But that isn't the extent of who Christ prays for, I believe. I think he also has in mind the them, forgive them. I think he also has in mind many of the temple priests. Because Acts 6, 7 says, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So as Jesus hangs upon the cross, and as he says, Father, forgive them, he has specific names and specific faces who are specific people in mind. And he says, Father, forgive them, which is a prayer, I believe, of forgiveness unto salvation. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And you say, how could they not know what they were doing? You're telling me they didn't know they were murdering. Him. That Judas didn't know he betrayed the Son of Man after spending three years following him? Are you telling me that the rulers of the Jews didn't know that they lied about Jesus so that Rome would arrest and murder him? Are you telling me that Pilate didn't know he condemned an innocent man? That the crowds didn't know they were accusing a genuine miracle worker? So what does he mean 
they don't know what they are doing because they all seemed pretty guilty. Well, Jesus wasn't saying they have no idea what's going on. Yes, they were complicit and guilty. So he's not saying, Father, their, their slate is clean here. No, what he's saying is they know their part in this drama of death, but they don't know the massive significance of what they're doing. See, even Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.8, they didn't know that they were putting to death the Lord of glory. They were blind and they were ignorant. They had eyes that saw not, ears that heard not. And yes, they were committing a real crime against a real God, but they didn't know the extent of their evil. See, Peter affirms their ignorance in Acts 3.17. He's preaching again to the watching crowds. Listen to what Peter says. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. He said acted in ignorance just as your rulers did. So there is a sense in which, yes, they are guilty. Absolutely guilty. But they didn't know the full implications of their evil. But by the way, that doesn't take them off the hook. That doesn't mean they're not guilty. Because even a sin committed unintentionally requires the sinner to make restitution to God. You go back to Leviticus, the Mosaic law affirms this principle. Even sins of ignorance required a bloody sacrifice. Leviticus 5.15 declares this. If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally, get that, sins unintentionally against the holy things of Yahweh, then he shall bring his guilt offering to Yahweh. Right, so even Moses acknowledged, you may sin ignorantly, but you are still culpable before Almighty Holy God. Sins of ignorance are still crimes against the Creator. So yes, the people that Jesus has in mind, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They are absolutely guilty, but they are also ignorant of the full measure of their sin against God. And in an act of incredible mercy, Jesus Christ intercedes on their behalf before the, the bar of God's holy justice. And Jesus prays a prayer of pardon for his mockers and his murderers. But really, you shouldn't be too surprised because Isaiah said this was going to happen. Isaiah 53, he predicts Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's exactly what Christ is doing in this moment. He is living out the prophecy of Isaiah. Which again shows you the beautiful consistency of scripture. And think about this Savior. Your Savior. Even as he dies... He reaches out to rescue those who are dying unbeknownst to them. He reaches out to rescue those who are headed to hell and they don't even know it. And he applies the blood that he is shedding to cover the sins and transgressions of those in that moment who were cheering on his murder. Where are you going to find a savior like that? Not in any other religion or text. Just here in the Bible. Because we could never create a savior like Jesus. And there's good news, I think, and a personal encouragement to you as believers. See, this prayer of Jesus models what I think ought to be our prayer for sinners. Right? Jesus was praying for wicked, wicked men in the act of their wickedness. And he prayed for their pardon. And so I think the model for us is we also should pray for those who seem to be the most hardened and unrepentant sinners. 
Those who you say, well, I've talked to them about Christ. My coworker is so hardened to the gospel. Or my mother-in-law or my daughter or son, they want nothing to do with Jesus. They don't come to church anymore. They won't listen to a word about the gospel from me. They are so hard. Well, the same blood of Jesus that rescued from hell the ones he prayed for on the cross can rescue sinners today. You used to be one of those. Even if you were very moral and very religious, yet before Jesus saved you, you were dead in your sin. And dead men don't walk unless Christ gives them life. So your own salvation is an example of the kind of transformation God can affect in the hearts of those who today hate him. And so whether or not it's a, a, an errant child who has left the faith, or a relative, or a coworker, or your spouse, or your grandmother, pray for their souls. Do not lose heart. God still is in the business of saving sinners. Just as Christ displayed, so too may we imitate prayers for the rescue of hardened sinners. That's Jesus' work of pardon upon the cross. Let's turn now to his work of preservation. And now we hear his second saying upon the cross, moving from a work of pardon to a work of preservation. We're still in Luke 23. Why don't you go to verse 43? And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Well, again, the scene is Jesus hangs on the cross, flanked right and left by two criminals. Isaiah prophesied this would happen, Isaiah 53, 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. We're not surprised that Jesus dies with criminals. Isaiah told us it would happen. And think of this. Jesus was surrounded by the beasts of the field at his birth. And in his death, he's surrounded by the beasts of mankind. And he says, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Well, who's he talking to? Well, Luke 23, verse 39 says this man to whom he address, he speaks, is a criminal. The parallel account in Matthew 27, 38 identifies him as a robber. But that word robber isn't what you might think, someone who snatches a purse off a lady in a busy market or comes into your house to steal your TV and your laptop. No, the word robber was really the word for brigand, which is an old word. It's, a, it's not just a thief. It's someone who plunders as they steal. It's a, a hardened, even a violent thief. So that's who this man is that Jesus says, today you shall be with me in paradise. It's very probable that this man was one of the accomplices or a cohort of Barabbas. Right? Barabbas was thrown into prison for murder and insurrection. Luke 23 verse 19 tells us that. Well, that's the kind of man that this criminal was. So they could have been arrested together. So please don't think that this guy is a lowly criminal who just got a bad turn of events in the Roman court system and he ended up on the cross. No, this man was a vile criminal. He's not a nice guy. You wouldn't invite him over for Sunday dinner. But Jesus says to him, today you shall be with me in paradise. And if we knew just how wicked this man was, we would recognize just how significant this statement of Jesus is. Because testifying to the character of this man, to whom Jesus speaks, is that even as he justly dies on a cross, right? He deserved his punishment. Even as this man dies on a cross justly, he hurls abuse at Jesus. See, Matthew records that as this criminal and his, the other criminal hung on the cross, both of them were mocking and scorning Jesus. 
Matthew 27, 44 records that. So as this man hangs with Jesus, and as he rightly deserves to die and Jesus does not, he turns his head to Jesus and mocks him. He fills the air with poisonous speech attacking Jesus Christ. But as he does that, something very interesting happens. As this man's blood drips out and his life slowly collects in a crimson pool at the foot of the cross, something in this man's heart, this hardened criminal, it begins to change. And seeds of genuine repentance begin to break through the stony ground of his heart. Let's see it unfold in, in Luke's account. Look at verse 39. And one of the criminals hanging there was blaspheming him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, and that's the R man in question, but the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for what we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. We'll go back to verse 40. He rebukes the other criminal. And that word rebuke is a strong word, a strong, sharp correction. And how interesting that the one who formerly despised the Savior now defends the Savior. Moments before, he too would have been mocking Jesus, but now he defends Jesus. And then verse 40. Do you not even fear God? Which would imply he does now fear God, the one speaking, our man, our criminal. And so the one who lived his whole life in rebellion to God, shaking his fist at God, now is gripped by a holy fear and reverence of this same God. And it's like the awful weight of a lifetime of sin comes crashing upon him like a hurricane and he bends and breaks under the weight of divine conviction. And in verse 41, those screws of conviction tighten even further because he acknowledges the justness of his own punishment. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for what we have done. And something remarkable is unfolding here because a man in the throes of death is also in the throes of divine deliverance. And it's as if he's, in the, he's drowning in the waters of judgment and then he spies the raft, the raft of repentance and rescue and he clambers over the side and gets in. And you might say, how could a guy who's so wicked that even the Romans deemed him necessary of a violent death and the death of, on a cross, by the way, they said it was to die a thousand deaths. It was so bad. So that's what the Roman secular authority said this man deserves for his lifestyle. So how does a man like that suddenly have a change of heart? Well, maybe as he hung on the cross, maybe as he listened to Jesus' prayer of pardon, maybe he thought in his heart, if this man can forgive them, could he forgive me? Maybe he heard the cries of the crowd who were mocking him, according to Matthew 27, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Maybe the man heard this and said, he saved others? Could he, could he save me too then? Could he continue his work of saving? Or maybe as he hung on his cross and Jesus was in the middle, maybe he craned his neck and peered at the placard hanging over Jesus' head and saw that it read, this is the king of the Jews. 
And maybe he asked himself, is this the king I've heard about my whole life? Is this the Messiah that our people has looked forward to for hundreds of years? Is he the one who will finally bring God's kingdom to earth? Well, we don't know what was transpiring in his heart, what, what occasioned his repentance, but we know he was in the midst of repentance. And it couldn't have been a human work. Repentance is never a human work. It is a gift of God. And even just think on a human level, who would ever choose to place their trust in a Savior who was dying and breathing out his last breaths beside him, bruised and bloody and broken? Who would ever look at him and say, oh, I want to entrust myself to him from a human perspective? I mean, the scripture says he was so disfigured by, his, uh, by the beating and the, the scourging that he scarcely looked human. So who would ever look at him and say, I'm going to place my eternal trust in this pathetic, disfigured, almost dismembered man? Nobody would do that. So this is nothing less than the sovereign hand of God reaching down from heaven to grasp this man's heart and transform it. In a moment, this was God plucking a sinner out of the flames of hell as he was catapulting down to judgment. And so the man, undergoing this mysterious operation of divine mercy in his heart, in this moment, verse 42, he looks and says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And isn't that a beautiful, humble cry? Notice he doesn't claim merit or worthiness. His hands are empty and he knows it. What could he possibly offer to Jesus when all he had was a life of sin and crime? What merits could he present to Christ and say, look at what I've done. I do deserve your mercy. What work of righteousness could he even look to in his own life and say, Savior, consider my goodness? A.W. Pink remarked this. He could not walk in the path of righteousness, for there was a nail through either foot. He could not perform any good works, for there was a nail through either hand. He could not turn over a new leaf and live a better life, for he was dying. So how will the Savior respond? What will he say to this man? Desperate for mercy and deserving of none of it. Jesus could have said, Save yourself, you wicked sinner. He could have said, you deserve hell and hell you shall receive. He could have said, you squandered your whole life and in your last breaths do you come beseeching my favor? No, you wasted your time. Now bear the bitter fruit of your life could have said any of those things but what he said is in, recorded in verse 43 truly I say to you today you shall be with me in paradise and what a what a picture is Jesus right now in this moment on a, as a human bloody dying Pathetic, ragged, yet in his divinity, mighty to save. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You see, Jesus, though all of his physical strength was departing, had lost none of his spiritual strength to save. Today you shall be with me. 
Spurgeon commented on this and said, The man who was the Lord's last companion on earth was his first companion at the gates of paradise. And I want you to notice, again, look down at verse 43. He says, today you shall be with me. He doesn't just say, today you'll be in paradise. But he says, you'll be with me. See, Jesus doesn't save anyone generally. He doesn't save you for a general relationship with God. He saves you unto personal relationship and intimacy with God. But that's actually not even what the man requested. He didn't say, remember me and let me be with you in heaven. He just said, remember me. So Jesus goes far beyond his request. And he says, you will be with me in paradise. Not a thousand years to come in the future, but you will be with me today. And it kind of reminds us of those comforting words of Jesus to his disciples in the upper room, John 14. And my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And as a Christian, those words should encourage your faith. Jesus says by extension to you, if you are a believer, you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, then he says to you, I am preparing a place for you. You have a better home. And you will be there soon enough. I'll make certain you arrive. And that everything is ready for you. And in a similar way, Jesus looks to this man in his last hours of life. And he promises you will experience not just paradise, but my perfect presence forever. And paradise. And this is an, an, indeed an amazing work of preservation. This man stood at the very cliff edge of hell. And the fires were lapping at his feet. And yet Jesus' strong arm sweeps him back and rescues him. Because Jesus is the Savior. William Cowper, a famous hymn writer, he penned the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And, and some of his words are so poignant. He says, The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. You see, it was God's incredible mercy that Jesus should be numbered with the transgressors. So that we could be forgiven. So that this dying thief, this criminal, this brigand could be rescued. And let me talk to you for a moment if you know that you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you know that you're not a Christian and you only come because your mom and dad say you have to come. Or maybe you come because you think it is your attendance that gets you into heaven. And it's by virtue of your morality and your Bible reading and your going to Bible study every Wednesday night and your participation in a woman's group or, or really just your being a good and upstanding citizen. And in your mind, that is the merit that you need to get you into heaven. Well, let me just hopefully disabuse you of that notion. Because whereas you may think that you look very pretty before the Lord, let me tell you, you are this man in the story. You are the dying thief on the cross. He's a picture of mankind, and if you're not saved, he's a picture of you. His pitiful condition is your pitiful condition. Yes, his hands were perhaps stained red with the blood of murdered people 
And you say, well, I've never done such a thing. Well, your hands are stained red with the crimson stain of sin. And you can't wash that away. And you say, well, I haven't broken any earthly laws. I'm an upright, moral person. Well, you have broken every one of heaven's laws. And you are a vile criminal in God's just eyes. And you say, well, I've done many good deeds. Anyone you ask at school, at work, in my neighborhood would tell you, I am a good man. I'm a good woman. Everyone at church thinks I'm, I'm a Christian. I must be a Christian. If that is what you are trusting in, your hands are as empty as the thief's hands on the cross. You have nothing to present to the Savior. And so I would plead with you, follow the path of this man. Cry out to Jesus for mercy that you cannot possibly pay for with good deeds. Cry out to him because like the thief, like him, your time is short. And like him, you are condemned. And like him, you must repent. And like him, the Savior stands willing and ready to take away your sin. And so I would plead with you, if you are not in Christ, then today you must follow the example of the thief. You must cry out for mercy. You must cry out for rescue. Because only Jesus can do such an amazing act of rescue. But the good news is he can. And his work of soul preservation continues even today. One last work for us to consider. One last statement of Jesus. We'll cover it quickly. We move from a work of preservation of soul to a work of provision. Really the provision of a son. For this we need to be in John 19. So turn with me in your Bibles to John 19. Start in verse 26. Here we'll gain insight by looking at this third statement of Jesus on the cross. John 19, verse 26. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Isn't it a remarkable thing that in the darkest moment of Christ's life, when anyone would naturally be thinking about himself and his own awful situation, yet Jesus looks to the needs of others yet again. He looks upon his mother. And how like Jesus to think nothing of self, and to always be considering the good of others. Right again, the scene is he's hanging on the cross. The crowds, the rulers, the guards, they're all gathered to mock him. Below, the soldiers are dividing up his garments. They're casting lots to see who will get this, who will make some profit from today's work of butchery. And as they do that, as they cast lots, then Jesus speaks for the third time. Only this time he addresses his mother. Right? Because at the foot of the cross or there, there close by is Mary. No doubt her cheeks are, are, are stained with her tears. No doubt her body is even now being racked with sobbing cries. Her face distorted with only the grief a mother could know as she watches her son die. And there she is. And the text seems to indicate she's been there the whole time. Not like she just arrived, but no, she's been there the whole time. And so you may wonder, if she's been there the whole time, why does Jesus only now address her? Why not sooner? Well, perhaps the answer lies in verses 23 and 24. 
So in verses 23 and 24, we see that the soldiers at the foot of the, at the cross are casting lots for his garments, right? And it says they cast lots for his tunic. Well, a tunic was a garment given to a son by the mother, typically. Right, and actually a legend says that Mary gave this tunic to Jesus when he left for his ministry. So about when he left for his ministry, Jesus, a legend says, gave him this tunic. And so one commentator notes, when those soldiers grabbed his tunic and began to cast lots for it, it's as if they reached and touched his very heart with a reminder of Mary, his mother. And so he looks at her in this moment, his precious mother. And she's standing, the text says. And isn't that sweet? She's not collapsed in a heap on the dirt. She's not writhing in agony on the ground. She's not curled up in the fetal position. No, 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 she is standing. And there is strength in this lady to stand in this moment. And there is courage in her heart as she watches unimaginable horror unfold before her. A.W. Pink rightly observes, Never was there such bliss at a human birth, never such sorrow at an inhuman death. And that right now is the very pain that is lancing and stabbing Mary's heart as she watches her son, her perfect son, whom she believed in and trusted as she watches him die as if he was a guilty criminal. But see, that pain was not a surprise. At his birth, that was prophesied. Luke 2 records how the old man Simeon, when Jesus, when they brought Jesus into the temple as a babe, he took Jesus in his arms and he declared that one day to Mary, a sword will pierce even your own heart. We are now in that moment where the sword has been inserted into her heart. The sword of grief, the sword of agony, the sword of pain. Oh, it is fully thrust into her heart in this moment. And it's in this moment of pain, grief, and agony, unbearable, that Jesus addresses her and he says, Woman, behold your son. And you say, well, what do you mean, behold your son? Why would he say this? What is he doing? Well, at this point in their life, it's very likely that Joseph has long since been dead. Right, the last the scripture says about Joseph, his father, half-father really, Luke 2.51, scripture says that, that Joseph was there. Jesus was 12 years old. That's when they, he got lost in Jerusalem. They found him in the temple. That's the last mention of Joseph. Jesus was 12, as I said. If you go to John 2, the wedding of Cana in Galilee, Mary is there, but there's no mention of Joseph. So most people think he was already dead by that point at the wedding of Cana in Galilee in John 2. So very likely he died at the start of, at least by the time Jesus' ministry began. And so up to this point in her life, Mary would have been cared for by Jesus and by his siblings. And he had many siblings. But the thing is, none of them believed in Christ at this point. They didn't trust him as their Savior. They didn't think he was Savior. John 7 says they didn't believe in him. So now more than ever, because Mary did believe, now more than ever, as Jesus, her Savior, dies, she needs someone, when he's gone, to care for her, but someone who believes in him. Someone who has the same love and affection and trust and faith in Jesus that she possesses. But she can't find that among her children, not at this point. So Jesus says, woman, behold your son. Now, who's he talking about? Who's the son? Well, it's John. It's the disciple John. And so he says, behold your son. 
And something very interesting happens here when he says this, because when Jesus says, woman, behold your son, those words transform the nature of their relationship instantly. No longer is Jesus her son, now he's her savior. No longer is he going to make earthly provision to care for her, he will go make heavenly provision for her. No longer is he going to do the son's duty of protecting her from the pains and sorrows of life. No, he's going to protect her from the wrath of God. And so he says, woman, behold your son. And then he continues in verse 27. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And it's as if he's saying to John, let my dear Mary be to you as if she was your dear mother. And let your love for me be displayed in faithful love for her. Because I will be gone. And I will be loving her in a way she cannot yet feel. But you must be here to love her in a way that she will feel. By caring for her. And John obviously understood because the rest of verse 27 records. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And thus we see that Jesus' work of provision was accomplished. Because Jesus always accomplishes his work. And incidentally, what we have here is not only Jesus caring for his mother, but also upholding the law of Moses. Right? Because Jesus knew what Mosaic law required of a son to his parents. Exodus 20:12, honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. Those words were etched in stone and they were etched in his heart. And even as he died, he upheld the very length and limit and extent of the law by saying, behold your son, behold your mother. And even as he hung on a cross and died, isn't it amazing that he didn't forget his obligation to the law of God, nor to his mother? Your Savior is far more wonderful than you've ever imagined. Well, as we've seen today, last words matter. Last words matter. And no last words have ever accomplished so much, revealed so much, mattered so much as did the last words of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So my hope for you this morning is as you leaned in to listen at the cross, that you see the work of Jesus in a way that is new and rich and beautiful and that inspires in your heart more love for Christ than when you first took your seat this morning. You'll never find a Savior like Jesus. Why don't you pray with me?